Clive James, Cambridge. Everything is extraordinary. Clive James is dying. He's writing a poem about a Japanese maple tree, which has been bought by his daughter for the garden, and his duty now, he thinks, is to live to see the leaves in the autumn turn to flame. That will end the game, he writes, meaning he won't survive the season. Leukemia has done for him, but he will go out in a blaze of glory from the tree, as he says, filling the double doors to feed my eyes. A final flood of colours will live on as my mind dies. Clive James is still dying two years later, but he's opening the door of his surprisingly small Victorian terraced house in a quiet street in Cambridge and welcoming me in and saying rather sheepishly that the tree died first. We had it replaced, he says, in a weakened, croaky version of that assertive, nasal, Aussie voice that was so familiar to so many of us in his days as a television star when his audiences numbered millions. Am I embarrassed to still be here? Yes, highly. And he chuckles wheezily. Clive James is a slighter version of himself today in black shoes, black trousers and a black turtleneck with wisps of white hair like smoke around a coin-shaped wound on his forehead, the evidence of a recent operation. Back in the day, he was the king of primetime, a bald-headed bulldog in a suit with a face caught between a smile and a scowl bringing us witty reports from far-flung places and wry documentaries on the power of fame or the weirdness of television. The man with the golden tongue and a supermodel on each arm full of charm and sometimes smarm, but always funny, always sharp, always sort of true. He created his own legend and then told us it wasn't to be trusted in a memoir called Unreliable Memoirs, which burned with veracity and sold like hotcakes and which I carried around one teenage summer like a manual for life because here was a boy from nowhere just like me who reached up and took the gift of words from the tree and ate the apple and got to say what the hell he liked with eloquence and charm and bite and they let him in to Cambridge, to the BBC, to all the places boys like us could never be, all those living rooms through all those TVs by sheer force of personality. He seduced us all. And he was serious too. A man with a brilliant mind who understood our culture and how it was changing before our eyes, who analysed the frivolous as if it were high-toned and told us who we were and made us laugh. There was a lot of laughter. If he was before your time, can I just say, he was a colossus for a while. You really couldn't escape him. From mad television shows to chat and books of essays and a handful of novels and collections of poetry for which he's only lately been given the credit he always felt he deserved. Almost too late. I feel like I've had a whole other career since I got sick, he says. My problem as a poet before, was that people thought I could not be serious. I was a TV face. But when you're on the point of death, you look pretty much as serious as you can get. He coughs 
nastily. Sorry, I'm not just doing this for drama. We're in the back room of his simply but elegantly furnished house, which has been adapted for this last season of his life. Sunshine is spilling through the skylights in the conservatory, a long space that serves as his kitchen, his living room and his library. Clive James lives here alone. He split up with his wife a few years ago when an alleged mistress turned up from Australia and confronted him on camera in the street. He's made it a rule never to talk about his family or his love life, except in print under his control. But Clive's going to break that today, because what is there left now but words and stories, and a desire to say what mattered and what matters? But we start with the book he's pushing, because that's only polite. Play All talks about Game of Thrones and other box sets he's watched with his daughter of late, and argues, convincingly, that long-form television is the art form of our age. This reservoir of intelligible drama is unprecedented in history. Thing is, Clive, I'm thinking, if I was dying, if I had as little time left as you do, would I really be watching television? The question answers itself, he says. My immediate answer would be no, of course not. It's time to read Boswell's Life of Johnson again. But I've done that, and I find myself watching television. Also, I've got a sense of theatre enough to know. It would be interesting to anyone who heard about it that I was sitting there watching television on the point of death. So I was being mischievous writing this book. Mischievous, to the point of perversity, I say. That's okay. That plays. Brought you here. And so it did. How is his health right now? It could be worse. It's pretty bad. Combination of things, including emphysema. But leukaemia is the one that's hard to argue with. When he published that poem in 2014 and was gratified to read a tsunami of tributes, Clive James really did think he was about to go. But then doctors tried a new medicine, which had results that surprised everyone, including them. Ibrutinib. Great name for a drug, isn't it? A testosterone name. Sounds like an Arnold Schwarzenegger character from the post-Conan phase. <coughs> he coughs again. From deep within. I thought I was a goner two weekends ago. When I woke up at 4.30 in the morning with a tongue bigger than my mouth, it was scary that morning. You can't believe you can breathe because you can't swallow. I was nine hours at Adam Brooks Hospital getting antihistamines pumped into me through a vein until it went down. The doctors don't know if this was because of the leukemia or the drug. I'm faced with the prospect that the thing that is keeping me alive is trying to kill me. There's no way out now, anyway. These drugs won't cure the thing. But they stave it off. I used to have a ton of energy, but now I've got a fraction of it, and that won't alter. I'm not going to get well again, but I might get some more time. My legs are very weary. They're heavy, and I can't walk far. So I'm that unwell. 
But on the other hand, I'm that well. I'm here, I'm talking to you. My brain is apparently working quite well. I do feel very lucky I've been able to have this extra time to think and sum up. I feel lucky I've had a life. And I didn't really have to struggle hard with the choice when I was told my various diagnoses. The choice was, do you just lie down and wait for it? Or do you go on? I just went on, quite naturally. That is the choice. Do we surrender to the end or do we keep going? Rage against the dying of the light or at least keep breathing, keep wondering, keep reaching out for connection with those around us, looking for a hand to hold as we go. Keep writing. Paradoxically, I seem to produce quite a lot now. And the reason is very simple. I've got nothing else to do. I can't get out of the house. Is that literally true? I've been out of the house maybe once or twice this winter, which is over now, I suppose. Indeed, it's nearly summer. Not counting my visits to hospital, which are constant. But then I just step into the cab to go. My point is I've got no other plans to make and I know how to conserve what energy I've got left. Clive was born in Kogara, a suburb of Sydney, in 1939. His father survived a Japanese prisoner of war camp, but then died in a plane crash on the way home. I was born in chaos. The circumstances of my father not coming back from the war shaped my life. People asked me about it as if it was a thing that happened then and I overcame it and moved on, but I never overcame it. That's what I'm still doing, overcoming it. He was originally called Vivian, after a male tennis player. I hated it. I told my mother, look, I'm extremely unhappy being called Vivian. Could we change it? She agreed to that. My mother had an extremely bad habit of doing what I wanted. That ruined me. And it created me because it got me used to getting what I wanted. He found his new name at the pictures. I saw a movie with Tyrone Power playing a character called Clive and I chose that. I must have been ten years old. I wonder, is there any part of him that still feels like Vivian? Yeah, all the time. Things grow complex and stay with you. I don't think he solved them. He knows I'm recording this. There are two machines on the table. But he says, My great mistress, who was in my life for more than 20 years, never used my first name because other people had. So what, she gave him a different name? She just avoided names. She was amazing. She's still... somewhere. They're all still somewhere, I say. No. Some of them are dead, he says sharply. I've been around longer than you. Two or three of my first girlfriends are dead. Clive moved to England as a young man and his bright mind got him into Cambridge to read English. Then he went off like a rocket, becoming president of the Footlights, making people laugh and captaining Pembroke College on University Challenge. 
By the 70s, he was a journalist, one of those characters who emerged at that time as champions of the idea that you could come from what he calls ordinary circumstances and still expect to get a great education and make a name for yourself. Charlie Brooker, the creator of Black Mirror, is among the many who have called him an inspiration for that. I tell him I agree, mainly because of the memoir. You realise how lovely this is to hear. I promise that when you get to this stage, you just want to be useful. I got a letter from a lady who had brought up two kids in a very challenging circumstance who said, reading you gave me the courage to go to the open university. Those are unbeatable letters to get, and it's unbeatable to hear what you just said. I mustn't dwell on it, because praise and success have always been bad for my personality. I can't help feeling he doesn't really mind. I have to say it's a bit easier coming from Australia, because there's no class system. The system here is pretty hard to beat for the British. As a critic, he was the first to write about television as a serious work of art. As a presenter, he was a huge hit himself, with shows collecting the best and worst of TV from around the world, most notably the gruelling Japanese game show Endurance, which seemed outlandish and cruel then, but inspired so many of the reality shows we watch today. If you want to know why celebrities are forced to eat kangaroo dicks in the jungle, there's your answer. And... Talking of circles of hell, a few years ago he published a translation of Dante's Divine Comedy. That was bold. His wife, Prue, is a world expert in the subject. It was taken as a gesture of love towards her, as well as Dante, coming not long after she kicked him out. I used to impress my wife by writing poems when we were kids in Australia, and she's never forgotten it. God bless her. Prushaw is a distinguished academic. She's an expert in Italian literature. I remember that he fell in love with the Divine Comedy as she read it to him in a cafe in Florence in the 60s. When I first knew her, she was the most beautiful girl in Australia, in the world. A long time has gone by now, and she still is, he says, tenderly but with regret. Things got bad because I wanted to feel that way about every other beautiful girl in the world. But no matter how bad things got, we have all this to share and can't do without each other in that way. He looks around the room. Books, music, sculpture. It pleases me greatly that she's a great scholar. I find that an endlessly renewable source of interest and love. And yet they no longer live together. I've made every possible mistake. I'm still here, still married, which is quite incredible considering my weaknesses. You won't find me going too far with that theme, but you say what you like, you're a free man. I've read the poems, I say. They're full of passion. And he says quickly, don't forget that Dante was for her. And now the picture editor has arrived. She's called Stephanie and she would like him to sit on a throne to have his portrait taken because he's written about Game of Thrones. But Clive says, no, not a throne. I don't like to do tricks. You may have to take that away. I have no ambitions to sit on a throne, contrary to some people's belief. Still, 
He's very taken by Stephanie, who is French and has an accent he likes. I could keep you talking like that forever, he says, and is gratified when she laughs and appears pleased. Stick around. I'm a tremendous flirt in all languages. When she's gone to tell her team not to bring in the throne, he sighs. She doesn't know it, but she's got a smile that could start a war. And he drags out the last word, enjoying it to the full, then mutters, I broke my heart a million times. They're all on the same fault line, the same scar. I worry that he's tiring and say I don't want to keep him too long. No, please do. And he mutters again, this time words he thinks I might write. Clive James talking too long about the implications of the mere existence of Stephanie. <laughs> There's no doubt he thinks of himself as a romantic. The Italians used to call it the Visione Amoroso. It's a divine vision, the vision of love. It's a thing in itself. Different human beings walk in and occupy that space, and over and over again you are faced with this blow to the heart of what you hope to attain, but cannot have. It explains everything. It explains the Trojan War. And it goes on hammering at his heart, even as the rest of his body fails. Even now there's a girl I meet every three weeks in the immunoglobulin infusion unit, and I would fight my way through a lake of crocodiles just to get a glimpse of her. The mere suggestion of what might happen is enough. I wonder how he deals with all this longing, stuck in this room, and he gestures towards the books. I write those. Libido doesn't vanish entirely because there are mental patterns associated with it that aren't going to go away. But I deal with the longing mainly as I've always dealt with it, as a writer. So there's a connection with his creativity. I can't be hypocritical on this subject. I have to say that falling in love, a thing that happened often, could happen in five minutes. It could happen now as I walk. No, shuffle, down the street, it could happen. I regarded that as a direct injection of energy into my creative impulse. And it was, and still would be, if I was out there. He looks down the long room, towards the door to the street. I've had this conversation with several men in my life, writers like us, and I'm sure they all suffer from what we suffer, but some of them are very good at hiding it. He says this as if I'm part of his circle of writers now, and I am, of course, ridiculously flattered. I know what he's doing, but I'm still falling for it. Does he have any regrets? <laughs> I've got almost nothing but regrets. Things I shouldn't have done, and things I should have done better. But I'm lucky that I'm inherently a merry man, even though I have a tragic vision. I enjoy life. I'm a natural enjoyer. I might have done a bit more dancing. I might have had singing training. But I certainly have no regrets that I chose this course. Well, it chose me. He means writing. Still, he knows he did things wrong. There's another poem of his called Sentence to Life, published at the same time as the one about the tree, in which he describes himself shuffling down the street in sickness 
a sad man, sorrier than he could say. Is that true? Yes. His sin was to be faithless, says the poem, as if it could be true to everyone at once, and all the damage that was done. So, what does he say in his own defence? I do have all the standard defensive strategies of the weak artist. I can say betrayal, confusion, weakness, greed, all these things are not unknown in the history of the arts. Very few artists are complete people. If they were, they wouldn't do these things. He chuckles to himself again, perhaps realising how self-serving he sounds. That statement, by the way, is sounding a little gloomy to me. Some people near me, especially my wife and daughters, have heard all that bullshit before. Now Clive tells me that his daughter lives next door. His wife and other daughter live across the river Cam, just ten minutes walk away. He was living in a basement when he got thrown out by Prue, but this quiet two-up, two-down has been adapted for him on her orders, with the bright and airy conservatory that doubles as a library. He goes upstairs only to sleep now. Given how close they all seem, geographically, has he been forgiven? It's not for me to reach that conclusion. But the evidence is building. I must have something to me. One of the reasons I'm grateful for this extra time is that I've been able to think about my track record and bring it to some sort of conclusion and be grateful that I'm a better man than before I got sick. His daughter, Clarewin, has described him as both a showman and a recluse. She got it exactly right. She's as sharp as a whip, that one. But she also says his close acquaintance with death has changed him enormously. I've got more time for them, more time for her and for everyone, he says, and I must be more considerate. <laughs> I was bound to be, incidentally. I couldn't have been worse. I was like a lot of driven people. I made that an excuse for not stopping to listen. Now he's had time to do so. What a break that is, eh? It can't last forever. Is he scared? No. That much I've got going for me. I'm not afraid of death at all. Not afraid of not being here. I'm not being heroic when I say I'm not scared. It's all been an adventure, and it has been a blessing to have the extra time. I've never written better because my mind has never been clearer or with fewer distractions. I don't like the idea of the actual dying very much. But it's been a pretty smooth run so far. I dare say I'll get taken away in some quiet manner. He mentions his writing hero, Philip Larkin, the poet. He couldn't imagine a world without him. I easily can. I've got that to my advantage. I'm certain that all the heaven and hell I need to bother about and will ever know is here on earth. I wasn't afraid before I was born. Clive James has been an atheist for a long time, but I know from his writing that he admires certain people of faith. Is there any sign of him changing his mind about God now? No. If there was a supreme being, he would have intervened. He would have come to Auschwitz at Christmas when the snow was falling. He never did. No, of course there's no beyond. This is beyond.
We're already there. Clive wants to read a poem he's written about his own funeral, which he hopes will one day be the words inscribed on a plaque at Dawes Point in Sydney Harbour, close to the International Shipping Terminal. With the first line, Here I began and here I reached the end. He starts to read, then stumbles. Now I've screwed it, let's do it again. Then Clive James begins to read and the strength of his voice returns and for a moment... He's the cocksure Aussie with the quick tongue again, the brilliant young man from Kogara who left on a ship to become one of the cleverest, wittiest commentators in Britain and who dominated our culture for such a long time, but who knows for sure that the end is near. And it will soon be time for his ashes to be scattered close to where he once departed that Australian life for this. And as the poem says, to sink from sight, where once we sailed away. So what does he think happens next? Well, one day in the morning, don't wake up. You don't wake up thinking, Christ, I'm not here. In that sense, Wittgenstein was absolutely right when he said death is not an event in life. How about ending it himself? Would that ever be a temptation? If I was in pain, it probably would be. I'm no hero. Either I've got the painless version of whatever it is I've got, or the doctors and scientists are getting very good. Only pain would make me want to do that, and not while I can still write and read and listen to music. I've only just started to listen to music again. I've been saving it up. He looks across the room, and I notice his eyes are glistening. My wife and I, were sitting here a few months ago on that couch, and I was playing her one of the Beethoven late quartets, Opus 131, which is, I think is a towering work of art. I thought, maybe I should be doing this all the time, listening to this. I've only got one eye working now. If the time comes when I can't see, I'll start listening to all the old stuff. There's a lifetime of it. I could spend a couple of years just listening to Stravinsky. I'm not going to run out of material. And I realise in this moment that there is something beautiful and powerful to learn here. From a man who can't leave his home, whose time is all but run out, whose life is ending and whose experience of life is becoming more and more intense as it does, as he's been forced to be still and to make the most of every precious moment, so that the burning colours of the leaves on the Japanese maple tree, the voice of an elegant French stranger, the rise and fall of a string quartet, the company of a lifelong lover who understands and yet forgives him, the capture of an elusive turn of phrase and the dance of dust motes in a beam of sunlight all give such sweet, exquisite pleasure. Not just enjoyment, but a sense of joy. And I'm reminded of a musician called Wilco Johnson, who was also in the grip of a terminal illness when I met him, and who said in simple terms, nothing makes you feel more alive than being told you are about to die. I'd love to find a way to feel like that, to live like that. 
before it's time to go. And now, I'm sorry to say, Clive James is dead. He died at home in November 2019. A couple of months before, he was visited by a family friend, the writer Rachel Cook, who found their encounter heart-stirring and numinous, to use her words. Although she knew he didn't believe in the divine, it still seemed present to her. When I arrived, he was sitting in the thin autumn sunshine on the little balcony of his sitting room. He'd grown a beard and that, and his happy wave when I came in made me think of Robinson Crusoe. I was shocked by the way his cancer had ravaged his face. Contrary to reports, it wasn't his leukaemia that killed him, but a metastatic squamous cell carcinoma. In other words, it was the Australian sunshine he absorbed in his youth that did for him in the end. But his eyes were refulgent, and he was so full of grace, and so intact in every other way. Somehow, he was the very essence of himself. She saw what I'd seen, but she put it better than I did. Rachel talked to his daughter, Clarewyn, her good friend, who had spent Clive's final months working with him on a last book, The Fires of Joy, a collection of his favourite poems with his thoughts on them. And she said a thing that stays with me, because it puts into the final three words that feeling of intensity, the approach of death, revealing a new way to experience life. His world had shrunk to this room and that terrace. He never went anywhere. He saw almost nobody. He could eat almost nothing. And yet, every aspect of his life was filled with meaning. The fact there was an apple on that tree, whether it was rainy or sunny, everything was extraordinary. Thank you for listening to the story and thank you to Clive James's family who've given me permission to share something really rather beautiful with you which I'll do in a moment. Can We Talk is brought to you by Hod of Faith and I would love to hear your reactions or your own stories via their website hodoffaith.com or you can reach me on social media where I'm Cole Morton as I am in real life. So here it is, Clive James, that afternoon at home in Cambridge, reading the poem about where he wanted his ashes to be scattered. It was quite a moment, and I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you now. Return of the Cogra Kid. Inscription for a small bronze plaque at Dawes Point, Circular Quay, Sydney. Here I began, and here I reached the end. From here, my ashes go back to the sea and take my memories of every friend and love and anything still dear to me down to the darkness out of which the sun 
will rise again, this splendour nevertheless, fated to be when all is said and done, for others to recall and curse or bless the way that time runs out but still comes in, the new tide always ready to begin. Do the gulls cry in triumph or distress? In neither, for they cry because they must, not knowing this is glory, unaware their time will come to leave it. It is just that we, who learned to breathe the brilliant air, and first were told that we were made of dust here in this city, yet went out across the globe to find fame, should return one day to trade our gains against a certain loss and sink from sight where once we sailed away.